welcome to the Broadcast News Wrap, your shorthand guide to the most important news and views from the UK's TV industry. It's a momentous week for Broadcast as we celebrate the relaunch of our print magazine as a glossy monthly title after 61 years as a news-focused weekly. I'm Insight Editor Jesse Whittock and later I'll be joined by Broadcast Editor-in-Chief Chris Curtis to discuss redesigning and reimagining the magazine during lockdown content from the first issue and his hopes for the brand's future. But before all of that, we hear from Lewis Arnold, the creator of ITV's hit ratings drama, Des, who sat down this week with broadcast senior reporter Max Goldbart for an exclusive interview. Lewis spoke to Max about his approach to writing and filming one of the most narcissistic serial killers of all time, Dennis Nilsson, criticism of the show's tone and keeping the audience engaged throughout the three episodes. Please be aware, this interview includes spoilers. You have been warned. And so today on the pod, we've got Lewis Arnold. Lewis Arnold is a director of a variety of dramas, including BBC One's Dark Money, ITV's Cleaning Up, and most recently, Des, which was on last week on ITV uh, and launched with critical acclaim. Uh, alongside that, it's uh, consolidated as of today to become ITV's most watched drama of the last 15 years. Lewis, welcome onto the pod. Thanks for having me, it's a pleasure. No prob, no prob. The, the, the reviews, first of all, um, uh, have, have been excellent. Did you anticipate this kind of response? No, I, I mean, I don't think you can ever, um, you can wish and dream, but I don't think you can ever quite anticipate whether a show's going to, um, yeah, going to sort of engage with the public in the way I think this, this feels like it has. Um, you know, I, I, the shows I think are going to do well sometimes never do very well. And then the shows I, uh, I think are, are destined to fail, um, you know, do well. I, like, you know, you just never know, essentially. Um, so it's been, a, it's been a lovely surprise. And I think we've all kind of been quite um, grateful for the conversation that's happened between viewers and um, for the way it's been picked up and... Uh, championed as well by certain critics and certain podcasts and you know we feel incredibly lucky that that it's kind of yeah it's it sort of seems to have captured an audience in in such a an excited and interested way mm. and and the aforementioned rating it's it's clearly being watched by many millions uh, and it's actually uh more than doubled uh in its consolidated seven day which is which is obviously a result and speaks to how people are watching it um but did, did you think you would reach such a mainstream audience telling a story like this i mean not to the level possibly that it has um you know and the figures we got today you know we're, we're all slightly um shocked by um and and equally pleased but i think we knew it would get an audience i think we knew there was an interest there because I, you know we ourselves were interested in it and i think working on it you know for the last five years whenever i've mentioned it to anybody they've always everybody or anyone i've always mentioned it to has always been incredibly interested about the case and what i know and you know just having discussions with them about the book lots of people have read killing for company and, and sort of having dialogue with them about that you kind of got a sense that there was there's interest in that mm -hmm. you know i think as humans we're all interested as as the drama says in in the macabre in the darker side of the human the human condition so I think I knew that people would be interested in that, you know, and don't think anything's been done on Dennis Nielsen before uh, in the drama world. I think there's lots of documentaries. So I think that I, I felt that, I think we all felt that there would be interest there, that people would, would draw an audience in. And then you couple that with, you know, David Tennant playing Dennis Nielsen. I think 
I, I, we felt that people would tune in for that um, and that it'd find some form of an audience, but I don't think we ever expected it to, to do as well as it has done. Mm. Um, I just, yeah, you can never prepare for that really. Mm. Yeah, I, I, um, I was surprised to hear that there hadn't been a, a sort of televised drama or, or film drama of it because it's, it's a really crazy story and happened quite a while back. Uh, which part of it do you think has, has resonated the most with audiences? All of it, really. I think there's so much of it that's quite fascinating from an audience point of view in terms of the case itself. But I think him as a person is what's really drew people in. That's where the, a lot of the conversation is based. You know, the, the observation of narcissism in a serial killer, one such as Dennis Nielsen. You know, and I think the, he's often a contradiction of himself. You know, on one hand, he talks about having apathy and you know, um, feeling remorse for his actions. And then in the same conversation, he can, and in the same letter often, when you read the letters he wrote to Brian Masters, he then will turn around and start talking about how he's, you know, he's not guilty until proven innocent in a court because that is the, the system that we, are, that we are in. But the two things are a contradiction. You can't say on one hand that you feel this remorse and that you should be punished. And then on the other hand, say that you're in it, but you are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law so you know i think that the idea of nielsen himself you know not so much the 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 sort of um the how and the bigger you know the how he did it and why but i think the the observation as him as a man post arrest uh, you know were are fascinating in some ways um, that coupled with i think you know the police failings the uh the in terms of the grander failing of failing the, the, all of the victims in many ways because as a society we just didn't know and then the 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 most unique element i think of the case well there's two unique elements of the case you know the first is that it's a a, a murder investigation in reverse so whilst you have you know a, you find a body but then you find the serial the, the killer straight away and that the actual storyline narrative you know projection is about finding the victims finding the names of the victims which is you know the reverse of most common true crime uh, dramas where you find a victim or a body and then you're trying to identify the murderer and then the other most interesting you or the most not interesting but the one of the most unique elements of this case the real life case was that brian masters started meeting and interviewing dennis um whilst he was still on remand. Um, so I think those two elements make it quite a unique story in some ways and, and are parts of the conversation because it's such an unusual case and there are so many unusual components that, that mm. come with that. Mm. And it was interesting to me how, I think when we were writing about this, when it was first commissioned, it was uh, positioned as being based on Brian's book, but then Brian kind of enters the, the narrative sort of late episode one and throughout, throughout the rest. Um, which I really enjoyed, and 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 was was that quite interesting for yourself? The book itself isn't that isn't that useful to us in some ways because the book is essentially, you know, Nielsen talking about all of these uh, crimes and all of these things he did, um, and Brian kind of you know uh, talking about them and analysing them, and that's not what the drama wanted to be really. Yes, that's part of it, but we wanted mm -hmm. to question the the. the the voice of, of Nielsen and uh, you know because he's very inconsistent himself you know one minute he says one thing and the next minute he says another thing but what was more interesting for me and Luke personally I think was the idea of, of Brian coming face to face with this man and having as like Peter J in many ways having to get beyond mm. the presentation you know so from what you learn about Nielsen this is a man that you know, called it, made everyone call him Des. You know, everybody said that he was the, this kindly, as he was phrased at the time, the kindly killer. 
it just doesn't make sense to me that, you know, there was this thing that where the job center, when they went down there, which is in the drama very offhand, but when they went to the job center to, to, to search his desk, the staff there wouldn't let the police do it because they couldn't believe that Dennis had, had, had done these, committed these mm. crimes. And I think there was an element of the idea of Brian and Peter Jay trying to get beyond the facade of Nielsen. The, this, this, and, and ask the question and poise the question of was Des like a pseudonym? Was it something he created to sort of project? And what was really useful from the book was Nielsen's own words. So he wrote lots of letters to Nielsen. And when you read the book, you'll see lots of, lots of the letters and lots of what he says in the letters we've used and put in the word, the mouth of David as Dennis to verbalize his thought process, basically. Mm. And that's where the book was really useful in helping us capture Nielsen's voice and the things that he was thinking and saying at the time mm. but from the point of view of Brian for me you had to bring Brian to the screen because the idea of somebody going through the process of writing a book and meeting a serial killer especially someone who came from the world of writing about French aristocracy there's been a little bit of I don't know if you describe it as criticism or controversy I know there have been a few complaints to Ofcom for example around the the kind of almost comical nature of the way that Dennis, played by David Tennant, behaves and how that works with the obviously incredibly dark nature of, of what the story is telling. How would you respond to some of that criticism? Quite easily, actually, in terms of I, everything we did, you know, like well, one, we weren't trying to be funny and we weren't trying to make the audience laugh. But these are things that Nielsen said. Mm. So all we're doing is presenting, and, and you know, I can tell you now, there's a scene we cut that I found very interesting because of where it came in, in the story, which was a story that Steve McCusker told us, which was that, uh, you know, one time during the interview stages of uh, Hornsey Police Station, they took him to the toilet, or Steve took him to the toilet, and uh, he was smoking and he threw, he, turned, he came out of the cubicle and he said, do you mind if I flush this in, in relation to the, the cigarette butt? And, um, you know, Steve said, yeah, of course you can. And he said, you know, sorry, I had to ask last time I flushed something down the toilet, I ended up here. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, yes, that's quite a mad sort of, some people might say humorous, cold thing to say. Uh, and we filmed the scene and we did it and, it, and, it, and we, we took it out for various reasons, but we've kept lots of them in, you know, the comment about the tie, you know, and not having a tie because they're all in police evidence. Brian Masters told, we were told a lot of things he said and we presented them because I think it says a lot, of, it says a lot about him more than it does us in the film or the, the piece of work. It says a lot about him that he could be that outside of what he did. Um, so I don't think we were trying to jar the audience or make them laugh or, you know, what we were trying to do was present a picture of this man as seen through the eyes of the people that were there. So when you hear those things, you hear them through Peter Jay. You know, the stop count line is a, a famous line that he said in that meeting that you can read in the transcripts mm. that he never did a stop check. You know, those things like, I think it would have been wrong for us to edit them out because we were worried about how people might react to them. You know, when you're dealing with these kind of people, I think we would have been doing a disservice to the people affected by him to edit Nielsen in some ways, because actually by putting those those comments in, you're showing how cold he was. Um, and I think it was really important for us to do that and not to um, not to edit the truth. Mm. Um, mm. And hopefully it creates a, you know, like it's, it's good in some ways that people do, do complain because it's, it should feel awkward and it should feel uneasy because that's the reality of what he was saying at the time in relation to what he did. And, you know, I've never laughed when I've 
whenever we've watched it or whenever I've been developing it, I find all those moments quite hard to watch and make me question and challenge him as a, as an individual, mm. um, which I think is what, what we're aiming for really. Yeah. And, and I, you know, many of us have seen the, the comparisons, the real Neil Nilsson videos and it's sort of almost, he's almost scarily accurate, isn't it? And, and, how David's really, really pinned that down. And in terms of, in terms of your role uh, as, a, as a director, how do you go about making a true crime drama dramatic, given that people are very aware of the outcome and there is minimal or, or almost zero interaction between, between Dennis Nilsson and his victims? Um, good question. Uh, I suppose, <laughs> yeah, I suppose in terms of the, the, the drama, I suppose the, the drama is never in... Well, I mean, some people, I mean, I, look, I, I've seen lots of true crime things where I haven't Googled, you know, the outcome. And so you do kind of watch and you kind of have a feeling that, you know, justice will sort of maybe, you know, be served in the end. But how you get there, you don't know. And the journey of getting there is what's, what's dramatic and what's interesting. But I think with this, you know, um, I think it's the questions it poised. You know, for example, the trial, which we brought in, uh, Kelly Jones wrote um, and we sort of we outlined as a, as a team and you know there were the big things that excited us there and, and Kelly and Luke there was you know the idea that actually the, and we kind of create this scene at the very start of the episode where Brian Masters kind of does the thing that where he talks about the fact that whether he's mad or, 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 or you know whether he's um, insane or, or not insane so whether he's going to be um, prosecuted for manslaughter or for murder you know, all hangs on the idea of uh, did he plan the murders? Was it premeditated? Was he in a state of mind when he when he killed them? And the argument that Brian says is, you know, this is a man that could cut up bodies, could boil heads, you know, whilst eating his breakfast and going to work and coming back. So in a, in a way, there is an element of madness there. But at mm. the same time, you know, he was a calculated man who went to bars, found out about the victims, you know, uh, before killing them. So there was also a very in the moment, not in the moment, but planned and premeditated nature to his to the murders. So I think that those the, the fact that you've got an end episode where you might know that he's going to be proved guilty, but you as a as an audience can challenge that. Well, actually, yeah, that's easy. Was he mad? Wasn't he mad? And you might watch the drama next to someone who has a different opinion than you. you might be like he's totally mad. He's, he's totally, you know, that doesn't mean he's any less guilty of the crimes from an audience perspective, but it does matter in a court of law where if you're, if you premeditate them, you're, you're, um, you're guilty. And if you didn't, you get a different sentence. Um, so I think there was that, which was regardless whether we went to, to jail or not, there was various questions that we could poise with the audience and leave with the audience. Mm. Good stuff. Good stuff, Lewis. Sorry, that was well, a really, really long answer. To not at all. Simple... Not at all. And I think it's interesting. It's it's like yeah, in in, in place of of the uh, a traditional crime drama where you would have the victims being murdered or whatnot, you've got these questions that are being posed that maybe you wouldn't have in in something else that keeps people really engaged. Um, and clearly, it's kept the viewers engaged. Um, so, congrats, congrats on the response to the show. Um, well, thank you very on much. The audiences, and it's uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast, Lewis. Well, thank so you much. for letting me. Thank you for letting me talk absolute nonsense for a while. I, I, I have a habit of just kind of, you know, going off on one. So it's yeah, no, thank not you at for all. Me to, to talk. Not at all. Thanks so much. And now on to the momentous uh, relaunch of the Broadcast Magazine, which for sixty-one years was a news-focused proposition and is now a glossy, shiny monthly. 
Um, I'm joined by Chris Curtis, the editor of Broadcast, editor-in-chief. And uh, Chris, it's been quite, uh, quite, a, quite a journey for the magazine in the last, uh, in the last six months. For some context, uh, we were publishing our last weekly magazine sort of towards the end of March, um, just as lockdown mm -hmm. kicked in. And um, I, think, I don't think any of us would like to sort of recall the stress of that magazine being produced from uh, remote locations. That was very tricky to do. Um, but we decided after the, uh, after the lockdown had forced us to stop publishing for, uh, for several weeks, that we would change the focus of the magazine and change the model effectively. The idea of going monthly was sort of already in the ether by March of, of this year. We'd had strategic conversations about it in terms of uh, if and when it's, it was a route we should, we should go down. There's inevitably a, a, a sort of natural direction of, of travel as more and more media, more and more journalism is consumed um, online and we've got a very strong online presence as you know Jesse we're constantly pumping out newsletters and breaking exclusives uh, to our to our subscribers in some ways the weekly print magazine was a little bit of a hangover from a previous era not too many uh, b2b titles that still have a a weekly uh, print component we we're always committed to print I don't think there was ever a moment when we thought we wouldn't return to print. Uh, I think it gives you a very valuable physical form in the market. It's nice when you walk into uh, a production company's office or get summoned to see one of the uh, senior commissioners or controllers and, and there's a copy of broadcast sort of on the, in the waiting area. And I don't think we wanted to lose that sense of being able to give content real prestige and real prominence by uh, dedicating a lot of pages to it. So we're always committed to print, but um, we're already thinking about changing the frequency. And like a lot of the businesses that we write about, um, COVID made us reassess what and how we did and essentially accelerated uh, a strategy which we already were, were mulling over and took that from being a theoretical conversation around when might be the right time to do it into a practical conversation around how should we how should we do it it just felt like a natural moment to reassess and a natural moment to come back with something different after i mean it's goodness it's what um best part of six months uh, yeah. since we published yeah. a, a print title and I don't know it's a bit like um my my son likes the hungry caterpillar book um where he munches his way through quite a lot of unhealthy junk food it turns out um but then he pops into cocoon and comes out a couple of weeks later as something new and sexy and exciting and a beautiful butterfly and i kind of like to think that uh, the lockdown's been a bit of a cocoon period for us and this is our uh, coming out party for want of a better phrase yeah um well we've we've got a a glossy um uh, how, how would you describe it it's, it's a, a lovely shot of ben frowl uh, staring deeply into the eyes of the reader on the front cover um, and that's an interview that you did with Ben um, and that piece to me sort of sum, sums up where we're trying to go uh, with the content that we're producing for the new magazine so uh, I suppose the proposition has broadly changed from something that was more focused on news stories at the front of the book to uh, more sort of in-depth pieces, I guess, um, giving pieces more more space to, to, to work in. 
Um, and the Ben piece is a, a really good insight into the mind of uh, one of the more maverick uh, controllers in the UK TV space. Uh, his words, not mine. And we've, so we've, we've dedicated money to photography, hence that lovely uh, shot of Ben uh, staring into the, into the ether. For sure. I mean, I think that, you know, we're fundamentally committed to news and uh, we intend to break lots of stories online and keep our subscribers up to date with what's going on. I think what a month allows you to do is to have the a sort of counterpart to that where you've got a bit more time for a bit more considered analysis. And the challenge for our team is to add genuine insight, you know, for the journalists to up their game, to up their ambition and to try and sort of dig uh, beyond the headlines a little bit to provide context uh, and uh, illuminate the, the kind of issues that the industry is is talking about. I mean, it also gives us a chance to make something more beautiful, frankly. Um, and um, one of the uh, kind messages we had on Twitter suggested that um, the relaunch broadcast and Ben Frow looked like it's uh, looked like GQ, which I'm sure uh, <laughs> sure Ben yeah. will be. He'll be uh, very be pleased about but um yeah i mean we want something that's more beautiful that's more aspirational uh as a as a as a product but it's more ambitious in terms of its written content uh with greater depth greater insight greater analysis um and you know that's a challenge and we won't get it right every single time and we're striving to do so and it's a learning curve for the journalists most of the most of the journalists that we employ haven't worked on monthlies before and uh and, and we have quite a strong news tradition on broadcast and we're not moving away from that but hopefully it'll be an opportunity for people to maintain their skills in that area and then develop in in other areas we've got um, we've got lots of good pieces in this issue um we've got a lovely in conversation piece uh where dan reed and norma percy who are uh, as you know two outstanding filmmakers of um who who share some similarities but are different in many many ways in terms of the subjects they tackle tackle and um their sort of filming styles um uh they compare notes they swap tips they talk about one another's uh techniques and um and sort of strategies and it's really nice we're looking to find ways in which we can get the industry talking on a sort of peer-to-peer -peer basis the, the best in class whether it's writers directors producers commissioners um, whatever it might be, talking to one another about their work, their style, their strategies, priorities. Um, I think that that can work. That can work very nicely. We want deeper analysis pieces. We want um, big name interviews, but big name interviews that do a which do a job. Um, and then we want to have a bit of fun and excitement and a bit of a, a bit of glamour in there as well, um, uh, if at all possible. So um, yeah. Uh, our job in the coming months is going to be to keep those ambitions really high. Um, if people listening have got ideas for things that we should be exploring, uh, people they'd like to see featured or uh, topical themes that they'd like us to see explore, then um, we're, we're all ears. We're um, scoping out the next few months um, uh, right now. And um, there's, it's liberating to be, uh, to a certain extent, to be free of the the sort of constraints of a weekly magazine production cycle and hopefully we'll be able to use that uh, extra thinking time to create content which uh, really delivers extra value. And I should say at this point um, a huge amount of uh, credit needs to go to the team um, who went through that sort of early development of what the new uh, magazine uh, looks like so that's obviously Chris you've, you've spent many many hours with many 
different members of the broadcast team on Zoom calls, um, designing, shaping, um, creating the look, creating the feel of what the magazine would look like. I think we have to name check uh, Charlotte Cripps, our, our art designer, who's For done sure. an, an incredible job uh, of, of putting together something which looks really unique, but uh, kind of very classic um, and, and, and quite classy, I think. Um, Charlotte spent more, more hours on uh, virtual calls with me than any human being uh, should have to suffer. Um, and a lot of, yeah, a lot of blood, sweat and socially distanced tears have kind of gone into it. When you're, I think some of us are quite old fashioned and used to seeing designs printed out on A3 paper and marking up proofs with a red pen and asking you to see things slightly smaller or larger or We've been talking about leading and kerning, which are very sort of geeky journalistic terms about the space between lines and the gaps between letters and all, all choosing fonts and all sorts of things like that, which have been, has been both incredibly exciting and because we're starting from scratch and, um, and so therefore very invigorating, but also uh, challenging and difficult. And with that exacerbated by the fact that we've been doing it on calls between Wood Green and Northeast London and Chislehurst. Uh, southeast of London and not sat across from one another making each other cups of tea and bringing in the biscuits so it's been a challenge but um, yeah Charlotte's done an excellent job uh, Dom Needham our production editor um, you know has been a, a force in terms of pushing it all through um, the work that you've done in terms of conceiving these pieces helping shape them with the team and everyone's really contributed i'm very proud of the work that's gone into it it's not been an easy thing to do all the while keeping our online operations um going and breaking some great stories uh, along the way but um what i'm hoping is that the the relaunch of broadcast this week will sort of reaffirm our standing in the industry next up chris we're going to move on to something that's arguably as momentous as a, a magazine relaunch which is um what we've been watching uh, this week and uh, Chris I've been watching the second uh, season uh, of Netflix's crime drama Criminal I'll say there's two things about it um, there's, on the production side it's very it's a very interesting model uh, it's Netflix doing some interesting stuff in that there are various different versions of criminal produced around the world. The other versions, they're foreign language, are they? The German yeah. versions in German and the French version. And can we access those on British Netflix? Can I watch them with subtitles? That is a very good question. Um, I believe you can. Uh, I think you might have to do some searching, but I believe that they, they should be out there on the interface. Um, in, in theory, Netflix owns the rights to all those shows um, and, right, yeah. and, and, and all the copyrights. So I guess that that content should be available. Um, and do the but, police officers change each episode as well? So they're, they're a set group. Um, right. Um, and they're, they're sort of... So they're uh, recurring characters. The cops are recurring and then the guest stars are the, the baddies or the people accused of being baddies. Correct. Exactly. And, and are, they, the, are they invariably baddies? Um, or is there a question mark over their guilt or not? There, there tends to be a mix of different uh, scenarios. So some people have come in to give evidence uh, or to help out with a case... Uh, some people are clearly being accused of certain crimes right, okay. um, and each episode have run times of between sort of 50 and 80 minutes will develop in certain ways and will and, and there'll always be some sort of uh, dramatic twist outcome really. Um, the, the plot doesn't really work with the uh, with the team, um, the kind of the, the 
the uh, the police team uh, in terms of their character development. It's very hard to do that when you're just sat in one room. Um, you, they've they've sort of hinted at certain things from time to time, but I, to be honest, I couldn't even really tell you the names of the the police characters. It's, it's sort it's no, sort of sure. irrelevant. Do they have like different interview techniques though? Do they have like different interview styles or anything like that, or is it more about the guest star? Uh, well, no, it's very much about how people um, gain confessions or gain information right. out of uh, um, out of interview subjects. So that you will see them talk about the best way to approach a certain part of an interview. As a as a journalist, mm. I never thought to uh, employ half the tactics they do, but then I suppose I'm not trying to <laughs> get someone to. Um, Don't know. It feels uh, like it sometimes trying to extract a confession. But, um, <laughs> yeah. You're making me think of the first ever episode of, um, I think it was the first ever episode of 24 Hours in Police Custody, uh, where there's a fantastic interview scene where the, the guy's uh, accused of murder and the, and the policeman's very pally-pally with him and is laughing and joking and easing him into it, making him relax. And then that's like a flick of a switch and the copper changes his tone and uh, the rigged camera sort of zooms in really quickly on the... On the um, What's the word? What's what is it? The accused. The, the accused. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, yeah. Zooms in on his face, and it's almost like a little bead of sweat starts to roll down <laughs> his forehead. It's very, it's very good. So okay, well I may I may check that out. I hadn't. I I'd sort of I understood it was it was kind of different versions and some sort of interesting format, but I hadn't um I hadn't quite uh, got my head around it. So maybe I'll have a uh, have a look at that. I stumbled last night. Not stumbled really, but but I hadn't been planning to necessarily to watch it live, but um, ended up watching the watching Grace and Perry's Big American Road Trip. I've got a lot of love for Grayson. I think he's a sort of genius artist, uh, but I think he might even be a better documentary maker. It was really fascinating discussion about race, really, in America. Um, spent uh, quite a bit of the episode in Atlanta and in Washington, D.C., which are two um, cities where the proportion of the populations, uh, I, think it's, I think they're both majority black cities. Um, and he's a great interviewer and he's able to ask challenging questions in a very engaging and sort of gentle way um, and at one point he talked about how enthused and energetic he was from having quite robust and what for many people would be incredibly awkward conversations about race but he, he sort of acknowledged how much he thrives on it um, and it was yeah it was fascinating it was uh, uh, you know uh, relatively conventionally shot um, uh, but you get the the kind of the color of Grayson in his luminous motorbike leathers, riding his chopper through the states, and um, yeah, fundamentally, it um, it's all about the quality of the interviews that that he does. So, um, well, you're watching a a fictional show about interviews. I was watching a, a doc about uh, about interviews as well, and um, yeah, all power to to Swan Films, to Channel Four, and to uh, to Grayson for making uh, what could have been, you know, a relatively conventional travelogue uh, actually uh, you know episode one a fantastic um investigation into into race relations in america which is certainly a subject that that bears uh, bears that uh, level of scrutiny well chris uh, thanks for joining me today on the latest broadcast news wrap as we say it's uh, yeah a, a, a unique day for us at broadcast um seems to be going well so far haven't had any furious emails that you normally get when you launch a magazine from someone um, who knows if one will turn up at some point today? Um, but so far, it's you've, all been... you've jinxed it now, Jesse. You've jinxed I really, it. I really have. I'm such a pessimist. But with you know, broadly so far, um, the the feedback has been uh, really, really brilliant, and it's uh, very fulfilling. And um, one of the few times as a 
I suppose as a journalist you get to sort of step forward slightly isn't it we're, we're not supposed to be the story and I suppose today we are which is which is nice for once um well yeah more more to come from us Chris but thanks for joining me today my pleasure thanks Jesse thank you for listening to the broadcast news wrap podcast I'm broadcast insight editor Jesse Whittock and you've been listening to Chris Curtis broadcast editor-in-chief senior reporter Max Goldbart and Des creator Lewis Arnold You can check our entire library of podcasts on Spotify and iTunes or through the broadcastnow.co.uk website. Until next time, thanks and goodbye.